Welcome to the Faith Life Fellowship Podcast with Dr. Scott Forrest. In today's message, Dr. Forrest presents part two and the conclusion of his teaching on the priorities of heaven. All right, so this week, the priorities of heaven part two. Remember last week we started a series, it's a short series, but a series nevertheless called the priorities of heaven and the origin of the message was Back in 2014, when Trish and I were preparing to go to Tanzania, I was asking the Lord for a message for the people of Tanzania. I ended up ministering to 300 uh, pastors and leaders every morning of this crusade in uh, a remote area of Tanzania called Bariadi, and it was just a pleasure. And so this message is the front end of what I gave the Tanzanians in the summer of uh, 2014. Uh, As I read through the book of John, and I was just doing my normal reading, I wasn't looking for a message. I had prayed for a message, but I wasn't looking for a message. I was just doing my normal Bible reading through the book of John, and one particular morning, I just went from John chapter 1 through John chapter 5, and I just kept reading, and the Holy Spirit just magnified some things in the text, which uh, illustrated what I perceive to be five priorities of heaven in the first five chapters of the Gospel of John. So that's a lengthy introduction, but I want to say that the priorities of heaven are the ones that I found embedded in the first five chapters of the Gospel of John, and this is part two. All right, by way of introduction, last week we introduced this series on the premise that the priorities of heaven could be discerned either literally or figuratively through the words and actions of Jesus in his earthly life and ministry. And we took some time identifying Jesus as the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And uh, if we wanted to know the priorities of heaven, we needed look no further than the life and ministry of Jesus when he walked the earth. Amen. We talked about how that Jesus was sent to earth as a statement of what God was like. Amen. He was the will of God in action. I like to put it like this. He was the will of God turned loose on planet earth. Amen. So, if you missed last week's message, I encourage you to go to our podcast and listen to part one of this series so that part two, uh, when you listen to part one and part two together, it'll give you a more complete picture of what we're talking about here in his motives in his words and in his actions Jesus reflected perfectly the will and purposes of his heavenly father and thus he demonstrated the priorities of heaven in everything he did and everything he said amen hallelujah Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says Jesus is the express image, it says in the King James, he is the express image of the Father God. Other translations say he's the perfect imprint or the exact duplicate. Amen. Praise the Lord. In Colossians, Colossians 1.15 says it like this, says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And we know from Scripture that God is a spirit. Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen. Amen. But I'm telling you, God is a spirit, but he's not just a spirit blob. 
He's a spirit that exists in a humanoid form. In other words, John saw him in the book of Revelation sitting on a great white throne. In March the 20th, 2005, I had a vision in which I saw the Lord sitting on a great white throne. I saw his feet, I saw his shins, I saw his thighs, I saw his arms resting on the armrest of this throne, and then I got about chest high, and then all I could see was smoke. The place was filled with the glory of God. Glory to God. And I said all that to say this. I want to come back to Colossians 1.15. It says he's the image of the invisible God. I said last week that I believe that Jesus reflected perfectly the character and the nature of God. But I also believe that he looks like his father. His features look like the father. And this scripture right here is kind of my proof text for that. It says he's the image of the invisible God. If you look that word up in the Strong's, it means he's the reflection or the resemblance of the Father God. I think he looks like his father. He probably looks a little bit like Mary, too, but he looks like his father God. Amen. Isn't that awesome? So he reflects God completely in his nature, in his character, and even in his looks. Amen. Hallelujah. So if you want to know the priorities of heaven, the priorities of God the Father, you know, you just need to look at the mirror image, the Word of God who became flesh, that is Jesus, who walked and talked and interacted with mankind on the earth for three and a half years. And that's what we're doing here. That's what we started last week. Let me recap the priorities that we discovered last week. In chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, we learned that to know the priorities of heaven, we need to look at the living word in action on the earth. That is Jesus. In chapter 2, Jesus used the miracle of changing water into wine to illustrate heaven's two top priorities. Heaven wants you saved and heaven wants you filled with the Spirit. Amen. Remember, Jesus looked at the empty pots and he said, fill them up to the brim. You know, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3 says, with joy, I will draw Water out of the wells of salvation. When you get saved, Jesus deposits a well of salvation into your empty vessel. Amen. And then he turned the water into wine, which uh, takes energy. So it's a way of saying he energizes the water that's in your well in such a way that it has to come out. And Jesus told the servants to draw out now. Amen. So when you get saved, a, a deposit of living water is put into your spirit. You become born again, but when you get filled with the Spirit, that which is in you has to come out, amen, and splash on everybody around you so they can taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the difference between being born again and being filled with the Spirit. Some of my Baptist friends, you know, they want to talk about, hey, listen, when I got born again, I got all of the Spirit that I was ever going to get. I'm in agreement with that. But if you want it to come out, <laughs> you need to get filled with the Holy Ghost. You know what I'm saying? I, I believe you got all of the Holy Ghost because it takes the Holy Ghost for you to be born again. Two ministries of the Holy Spirit at work here. One is the ministry of regeneration, which gives you a new spirit on the inside. And one is the ministry of power, which causes what's in you to come out of you. Amen. It's just that simple. People make it more complicated than it is. Hallelujah. Glory to God. 
In chapter 2, the miracle of changing water into wine illustrates heaven's two top priorities. Heaven wants you saved. Heaven wants you filled with the Spirit. Also in chapter 2, we learn that Jesus used the cleansing of the temple to illustrate that after He gets you saved, after He gets you filled with the Spirit, He wants to help you clean up yourself from the inside out, spirit, soul, and body. He wants you saved. He wants you filled with the Spirit. And He wants you sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart for special use. He wants to sanctify you, starting with your spirit when he gets born again, but then coming from your spirit, leaking through your soul, which is your mind, your will, and your emotions, and then even affecting your body. Amen. Praise the Lord. Then in chapter 3, this is all part of the recap. We haven't got past the introduction yet. Then in chapter 3, Jesus introduces the concept of the new birth using the wind as a metaphor. He went from using water, and now he's using wind in his discussions with Nicodemus, the Pharisee. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. I like the way the Brits say it. It is mandatory. It has to happen. Somebody asked me one time, are you one of those born-again Christians? I said, there isn't any other kind. You can't say you're a Christian if you're not born again. So saying you're a born again Christian is like you're saying you're born again, born again. Did y'all get that? How many have ever been asked that question? Are you one of those born again Christians? Listen, here's what you need to say. Now, I know why you asked that question, but it doesn't matter whether you call it being born again or being regenerated or being saved. You have to have a new spirit deposited on the inside of you if you're going to be saved. Otherwise, you are lost. you got to be born again. Jesus said you must be born again. You must be born physically into the world to be a part of mankind. And then because of the curse of sin passed down by Adam throughout all generations, you must be born again. Only this time you got to be born again spiritually. Amen. It's basic, it's fundamental, but you'd be surprised how many Christians don't get it. I don't think y'all are among that crowd, amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So last week we left off by restating the three priorities of heaven that we found embedded through chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. Chapter 1 through 3, we found three priorities, and those priorities were heaven wants you saved, heaven wants you filled, heaven wants you sanctified. Amen. Hallelujah. Pressing on. Let's keep reading, this time in the fourth chapter of John, and see what other priorities we can uncover in the life and ministry of Jesus. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 14 in the New King James Version. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, Jesus therefore being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, it was about the sixth hour. 
A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Listen, this is a side issue, but this always comes up when I read this passage here. Jesus said to the woman at the well, If you knew the gift of God that is talking and walking with you right now, you would ask me for living water and I'd give it to you. Jesus saw himself as a gift. A gift to mankind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So Jesus was acutely aware that he was a gift given to mankind. Amen. Amen. Now over there in Ephesians chapter 4, the first 11 verses, it talks about how that Jesus, he led captivity captive. He ascended on high and then he gave gifts unto men. Every person in here has a gift at least one, given to you by the Lord. But I'm here to tell you that you're more than just a person that has a gift or gifts. You are a gift. You are a gift to your community. You are a gift to your world, your circle of influence. You're a gift that other people can open up and find out about God. So, I encourage you, again, this is a side issue, but I think it's important, begin to see yourself not just as a person that has gifts, but as a person that is a gift. Amen? Glory to God. You'd be a lot more effective in your witness to the world. So Jesus answering has said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whosoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Amen. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Did you know that they still know where Jacob's well is to this day? It's one of the few holy sites in the nation of Israel that is not under dispute. They know where the well is. It's almost 4,000 years old and they know exactly where it's at. And probably about the time that this happened, it was already 1,800 years old. And they said it was 105 feet deep before you got to 15 feet of water. So in other words, you really had to lower that rope and that bucket or whatever you were using really, really down deep into that well to get some of that water. And that's why the woman's saying, look, you don't even have a bucket. Do you realize how deep this water is? What are you talking about? You're going to give me water of life. Jesus said, I'm talking about a completely different kind of water here. Amen. 
Hallelujah. So here again, Jesus uses the water analogy, very similar to the water pots of stone in chapter 2 at the wedding feast of Cana, to reemphasize heaven wants men saved and heaven wants men filled with the Spirit. You say, well, how did he emphasize that talking to this woman about living water? Well, this last verse is just awesome. Verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. If you examine it in the original language, this verse could be rendered like this. If you partake of the water that I give you, it will form a well in you that will eventually spring up and become an artesian well. An artesian well is a well that's always splashing out. It has a source of pressure underneath and it's always splashing out. What's the source of pressure? The Holy Ghost and saying, listen, don't be greedy with the living water on the inside of you. Let it splash out on other people. Amen. Glory to God. Let your static well become an artesian well, a geyser of living water to benefit mankind. Amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. So again, I say, here's a clear picture of the top priorities, the two top priorities. These are the only two that I put at the top. Everyone that we're going to discuss downstream from that can be moved around. Amen. But the two top priorities of heaven are heaven wants you saved. Heaven wants you filled with the Holy Ghost. He wants you saved because he wants to be with you forever. He loves you that much. He wants you filled with the Holy Ghost so that you can take the power of God and introduce other people to Jesus so they can get saved too. Amen. And filled with the Spirit and have a perpetual revival from generation to generation that you can be a part of. Glory to God. All right. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Now concerning the woman at the well. If you were to keep reading this story, you'd find out that this woman had been married five times. And let me put it in today's language. And she was shacking up with another guy that wasn't her husband. Thus, she was a social outcast among the women of her village, which explains the reason why she came at the sixth hour, which is noon. The culture of the day, the women would come in the morning and in the evening to get their water, their daily need of water. Amen. So she's coming at noon because she wants to avoid the other women. Why? Well, because they probably despise and revile her as this loose woman that's been through five men. And now she's on a sixth one. And even that guy, she's not even married to him. But thank God this illustrates to me another aspect of heaven's priorities. Listen, he not only wants you saved, but he, he wants everybody saved. This living water is not just for the elites or the, the religious leaders in our time. This is a gospel that extends to the down and outers. Hallelujah. The despised and the reviled and the outcast of society. The people nobody wants to hang out with. Amen. Jesus loves them all. Amen. That fires me up. Glory to God. And what's so cool about it, if you read the whole story, this Samaritan woman 
even though she was reviled and despised, ended up being the key to revival for the whole city. A whole city got saved because one so-called ungodly loose woman got a hold of some living water. Amen. It changed the whole town. Glory to God. Don't you dare despise somebody like that comes through the doors of this church. Jesus died for them. I don't care what they look like, what hairstyle they have, how many tattoos they have, what their past is, even what they're involved in now. If they come in here, this is a place where they can receive the living water of God and they can change their life forever. Amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. But if you continue to read in John chapter 4, something else significant happens at the very end of the chapter. Again in Cana of Galilee, the site where Jesus turned water into wine. So let's continue reading at verse 46. So Jesus came again unto Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The man was undaunted. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. I'm here representing my son. I'm laying it all out. Yeah, I know you say we seek signs and wonders, but my son's life is at stake. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. Amen. Sometimes a miracle is all it'll take for a whole household to come to Jesus. Amen. And then verse 54 is very, very significant. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Amen. The first miracle, if you remember, was changing water into wine, which we have talked about. That illustrates being saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. Now you've got the second miracle that illustrates another priority of heaven, and that is heaven wants you healed. He wants you well. Amen? How can you carry out the Great Commission and go into all the world and preach the gospel if you're laid up sick in the bed? He wants you well so you can fulfill your calling. Amen? It's no big mystery. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So let's press on in our reading and see what else we can find. This time, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. 
After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now I'll stop there for just a second because I read a commentary one time that said that this was a legend that an angel went down and stirred the water and whoever got in got healed. I beg to differ. I don't see that in the scripture. It says, for an angel went down at a certain season into the pool. You know, what I believe is going on here, you know, the Israelites, the Jews, they already had a covenant with God that included healing. They were not taking advantage of that covenant and God was so desperate to get healing to them that he sent angels down to stir up the water so that whoever got in would get in on the anointing and they would get healed. Listen, if you're not going to partake of the covenant, I'm going to try and get it to you somehow, some way. That illustrates the heart of God to me. He wants you well. He wants you healed. That's priority number four. Amen? Glory to God. But there's more going on here. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? In other words, do you want to be healed? What do you think his answer was? No, just give me a quarter. I'll be all right. Of course I want to be healed. In verse 7, the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. So, listen, I'm kind of reading between the lines, but I kind of got a visual image of this. Evidently, whoever it was that took him on his stretcher down to the pool of Bethesda didn't hang out with him during the day. They put him down there in the morning. Maybe gave him some food to eat, something to drink while he was there, and they picked him up at night. So he literally had no man available to get him into the pool when the water was stirred. He's saying, I got here to the edge, but that's as far as I can go because I've got no man to help me. And Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. Amen? I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus saith unto him, rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Amen. It's almost like Jesus targeted healing on the Sabbath just to irritate the Pharisees. And I love it. I love it. Now, I did a little digging here, and I got some revelation I want to pass on to you that you probably haven't heard before. So hang on. The word translated in verse 8 where it says, Jesus said, take up thy bed. That phrase, take up, comes from a Greek word, airo. That word, airo, is also used by Jesus in Luke 5.24, Matthew 9.6, and Mark 2.11, when he told the paralyzed man whose four friends lowered him through the roof at the feet of Jesus, he said the same thing to him. Take up your bed and go home. Same word, airo. 
Iro means to take up, to take away, or to remove. Kind of sheds a little different light on it, doesn't it? Stay with me. That's it again. Iro means to take up, take away, or to remove. It's also used by John the Baptist in John chapter 119 when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What did Jesus do? He didn't just take up our sin. He took it away and he removed it. Amen. Do you see where I'm going with this? Amen. Hallelujah. The word Iro is also the same word used in Mark 16 verse 18. Let me read it to you in context starting with verse 17. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up. They shall iro serpents. They shall take up, take away, and remove serpents. Amen. Now there are some foolish people who interpret this to mean that in your worship services, you should have a box of deadly rattlesnakes where people put their hand in, and hold them up and glorify God and worship Him in that way. Now listen, that's foolishness gone to seed. Okay, All it takes is a little bit of reading the Word of God, saying, Lord, what exactly do you mean here? And I did that years ago. I'm tired of trying to explain to people why it doesn't mean take up live snakes in your hands. I want you to show me. And He showed me. Iro, take up, take away, or remove. Amen. Hallelujah. So listen. When Jesus told the man at the pool of Bethesda to take up his bed and walk, he was telling the man to take control of the thing that once controlled him. Do not let it dominate you any longer. It's a type of freeing yourself of the strongholds of the enemy. If you got demonic oppression in your life, God said, I've given you authority so that you can take it up, take it away, and remove it in my name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Luke chapter 10, verse 19 in the New King James Version says, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, to be scripturally consistent, these people who pick up live rattlesnakes ought to put them on the floor and start stepping on them too. But that's not what he means. When Jesus said, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, serpents and scorpions are metaphors for demonic principalities, demonic spirits. Amen? So, with that knowledge, armed with that knowledge, we can go back to Mark 16, 18, And we realize that when he said they shall take up serpents, he's saying you will contend with, you will take up, take away, and remove demonic spirits that seek to control you. It's just that simple. Did everybody follow that? Amen. Hallelujah. It's a wonderful revelation. Thank you, Jesus, for giving it to me. Hallelujah. One more thing. This man was delivered from the prison that was his stretcher for 38 years. All it took was one word from Jesus. Take up your bed and walk. And man, he was up and he took that thing up. And I guarantee you, he found a dumpster if they had those back in those days. And he tossed it in there. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. So priority five. 
Jesus wants you delivered. Amen? He wants you delivered. He wants no strongholds in your life. Amen. Glory to God. Listen, you can be saved, filled, healed in the process of sanctification and still need deliverance from strongholds in your life. Amen. Amen. But you got to know from the words of Jesus that you have authority to tread on serpents, to take them up, take them away, and remove them from your life. You don't have to put up with harassment of the devil. Amen. Amen. Glory to God. Glory to God. I'll share one quick story along those lines. In 1997, I had been saved and filled with the Spirit. Let's see, 72 to 97. What is that? Somebody do the math. 25 years I've been saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. And I was flying for the Air Force Reserve. I was also a children's minister at our local church. And so I was, uh, I was considered a leader, and yet I was oppressed. And I'll tell you how it happened. I had a run-in with the general that was the wing commander of my unit. He didn't like me. In other words, he basically said, I'm going to do everything in my power to get you out of this unit because I don't like you. That's tough to overcome. Now, I'm just a, at the time, I was just a major. So major has no way to go up against a general, okay? So I had to turn to the Lord, and, and I had to lean on him during this time. But there was a period of about six weeks where I let the situation drive me into depression. And if my wife was here, she, she would tell you, listen, my husband is the most even keel guy you'll ever know. I, I, I'm seldom manic, you know. I'm just even keel. Ask my daughter. Nothing shakes me. But there were two times in my life when depression took a hold of me. Once when I was a sophomore at NC State, and once when I was a major in the 917th bomb wing at Barksdale Air Force Base. And it was so thick in the atmosphere, it was like you could cut it with a knife. I just let depression overtake me. What am I going to do? I got no career if this guy's going to be riding me the whole time I'm here. I got no way of advancement, no way of promotion. What am I going to do? And it, it really got bad. And let me just warn you ahead of time. Listen, demonic oppression doesn't happen overnight. It always starts in the flesh. And if you indulge the flesh long enough, it will eventually open the door to demonic oppression. So don't do that. I know because I did that. So... Over a period of weeks, it got so bad that my wife, she, she pulled me aside. She said, honey, the kids are looking to you for leadership, and they're seeing a father they've never seen before. You got to do something about this. And I, I just, all I knew to do was pray in the Holy Ghost, pray in the Holy Ghost, pray in the Holy Ghost. I was in the shower one morning. I was praying in the Holy Ghost, and all of a sudden, I heard the Lord speak to me. He said, cast off the darkness and put on the light. I went and looked it up. It's Romans chapter 13, verse 12. It says, the, the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Therefore, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Enough is enough. You know, you've been in darkness long enough. It's time to apply some light to this situation. That night, that night, I woke up in the middle of the night and I saw in the Spirit sitting at the far wall of our bedroom, right behind the 
bedpost, the foot of the bed there, there was a dark, swirling spirit. looked like an upside-down tornado, just black and swirling and menacing-looking. And I heard the word of the Lord speak to me. And he said, how much longer are you going to put up with that? I tell you what, I got obedient real fast. I said to the Lord, not another second. I said, in the name of Jesus, you foul spirit of darkness and depression, get out of my house and never come again. And I wish I could tell you that the next morning it was tiptoe through tulips and everything was wonderful and angels were singing. But it wasn't like that. Listen, sometimes you have to deal with the root of the problem and then you got to walk it out by faith. You just got to walk it out. So I knew I had dealt with the root and so I walked it out by faith. A couple, three weeks later, it was like I never had that spirit of depression. It was completely off of me. The stronghold was broken, and it was because I used the authority that Jesus gave me to take up, take away, and remove demonic oppression from my life. Amen? Hallelujah. Glory to God. I encourage you to do the same thing if you're fighting strongholds now. Amen. All right, so let's wrap this up. We've discovered at least five priorities of Jesus that are embedded within the first five chapters of the Gospel of John. So let me leave you with a few thoughts. The Bible makes it clear that John probably knew Jesus as well or better than any of the other disciples. He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's because he had a special revelation of the love of God that was powerful and life-changing. Thus, I believe he had an awareness of the priorities of heaven and the Holy Ghost allowed him to write them into the scripture. Speaking of John's gospel, it's the only one of the four gospels that doesn't follow what's called a synoptic format. In other words, a chronology starting with the birth and then and then Jesus becoming a carpenter and then, you know, entering ministry and then his death, burial, resurrection and ascension. Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke follow that format, but, but John's a little bit different. He just emphasizes themes, not necessarily following any chronological order. Amen. And the outstanding theme of the Gospel of John was the overwhelming, life-altering love of the Father God. Amen. His love for mankind is what drives his priorities. He's not just showing off when he gets people healed. He gets people healed because he loves people. He's not just showing off his power that when he gets people delivered, he gets people delivered because he loves people. When the gifts are poured out, it's a demonstration of his power, but it is more than that. It's a demonstration of his love. Amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. So, as I said earlier, John 3.16 says it well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So with that in mind, one more time, let me tell you the priorities that we found embedded either literally or figuratively in the first five chapters of John. Priority number one, heaven wants you saved. He wants you born again. Priority number two, heaven wants you filled with the Spirit. Priority number three, heaven wants you sanctified. He wants to clean you up from the inside out, spirit, soul, and body. Priority number four, heaven wants you healed. Priority number five, heaven wants you delivered. Amen. Hallelujah. There's one more point I'd like to make here before we finish up. 
in practical application, hear me out, there may be times where some of these things occur in different sequence than the way that I've ordered them and the way that I've taught them. For example, God may get a person healed or delivered or both, and as a result, people get saved. Amen? This was the case with the man whose son was sick of a deadly fever at the end of John chapter 4. We already mentioned it. When his son was healed, he and his whole household believed that Jesus was Messiah. And that's the essence of salvation. Amen? Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed Dr. Forrest's teaching on the priorities of heaven. If you are in the Wilmington area and are looking for a place to worship, come join us. On Sunday at 10 a.m. for coffee and fellowship, 10.30 for worship and service, and on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. for spirit-filled prayer. If you would like to learn more about us, access more of Dr. Forrest's teachings, and find Dr. Forrest's in-depth teaching notes, visit our website at gofaithlife.com. Also, visit and like our Facebook page at Faith Life Wilmington.